Good morning, everybody. Our first reading this morning is from 1 Chronicles, chapter 16, verses 23 to 31. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of the nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And our second reading is from Acts chapter 20, verses 13 to 24. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul abroad. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we all set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace.
Well, good morning. It is uh, great to be uh, back with you for a, uh, a second Sunday at uh, your 2023 uh, World Mission Conference. If you weren't uh, here uh, last Sunday, my name is uh, Andy Bannister, and along with my uh, wife Astrid and uh, my two kids, Christopher and uh, Katrina, we have uh, been a real privilege uh, to be with you this week. Huge thank you to, uh, to all of those who organized uh, this year's Mission Conference for inviting us to come uh, all the way down to you folks uh, from, uh, from the UK, as well as um, speaking here at the conference. It's been brilliant to be uh, in this part of the country. Again, we've had the privilege of having the time to visit old friends uh, in Australia. We've also seen some of the amazing sights and uh, bits of the scenery in this part of the, uh, the country. And every time I come, this is my third time uh, down uh, here now in Australia, every time I come, I'm reminded what a beautiful country you have, how friendly uh, the people are. It's been a real privilege uh, to be with you uh, this week. Well, the theme uh, for this year's missions conference has, of course, uh, been uh, unconstrained. That's been the theme uh, we've been looking at. And if you were here uh, last Sunday, I spoke on the challenge of, uh, of mission. I looked at some of the, uh, the challenges, the struggles, the temptations that could hold us back from getting fully involved and invested uh, into, uh, into world mission and how we can overcome uh, some of those. But in the second part of my kind of two-part message today, uh, I want to talk about the thrill of mission. Last week I gave you five challenges, this week I'm going to give you five reasons to be excited and enthusiastic and passionate uh, when it comes to world mission. Why should we want to be uh, involved in it? How can we get involved? What might, it, what might it look like for us and what difference might we be able to make? Well, a few, weeks, a few moments ago, we had Acts uh, chapter 20, a few verses from Acts 20 read to us. Uh, we read some of Paul's uh, farewell speech there uh, to the church in Ephesus. Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, and if you know your book of Acts from Jerusalem, of course, he then heads up, up, up onto Rome on a journey that if you know your church history, you will know that Paul did not return uh, from. And so he's in a reflective mood as he speaks to the Ephesian church, well aware that it might be the last time he gets to address the leaders of that congregation. And I'm particularly struck by the last verse uh, that we had read to us from Acts 20 this morning. Verse 24, uh, where Paul says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel and, uh, and to God's grace. And you know, every time I read that verse, I'm struck by how countercultural it is. You know, we live in a culture, we live in an age, don't we, that says it's all about me. Me, me, and me is what our culture tells us to focus on. My uh, safety, my security, my happiness, my choices, my life. And against that cultural background we're faced with today, Paul's words can come as quite a shock. Because here Paul says, do you know what? I frankly don't care. I consider my life nothing, worth nothing, he says, compared to the task, the excitement, the privilege of finishing the race that God has called him uh, to run and testifying to the good news of what he has, uh, God has done for him in Christ. 
Well, I was uh, recently reading uh, one of my favorite little uh, mission books, uh, Messiology, written by George Verwer. Um, it's his autobiography, and if you know anything about George, he's arguably one of the most influential mission leaders of our age. He was the founder of Operation Mobilization, an organization he led uh, for many, many years. And through OM, through Operation Mobilization, millions have been reached for Christ, and tens, even hundreds of thousands, actually, of Christians trained and equipped and, uh, and released into, uh, into mission. George died uh, just a few months ago, back in April, but what a life well lived. And in uh, his uh, autobiography, Messiology, he tells the story of how he first got involved in missions. He was just 18, uh, 19 years old, uh, and he was a fairly new Christian, only been a Christian for a few months. And he was reading through his New Testament, and he stumbled across that verse I just read to you. He stumbled across Acts 20, verse 24. And George describes how that verse was the verse that changed his life, turned his life upside down. He quit uh, his job as a fire extinguisher salesman, and he gave himself full time to world missions. I like to think George went went from putting fires out to starting fires uh, around the world. But what was it that so gripped the young George Verwer when he read that verse? And what was it that so gripped the Apostle Paul when he spoke those words written down for us in that verse? What in a nutshell is so exciting uh, about mission? Why should we get excited and thrilled and passionate about it? Well, I would like to give you five reasons this morning. Five short reasons why we should get excited about mission. And the first is perhaps the biggest, the most exciting of all. We should get excited about mission because God loves the world, because God loves the world. In 1871, the American uh, journalist Henry Stanley set out from the African port of Bagamayo hoping for the journalistic scoop of a lifetime. Stanley was leading an expedition uh, to search for and try and find the missing explorer and missionary David Livingstone, who had gone missing some years before. Well, after a journey lasting several months uh, through swamp and through jungle, finally Stanley comes across, he discovers the missing missionary. He meets uh, David Livingstone and he greets him with those now famous words, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. Stanley reports that the very first thing that David Livingston said to him, the very first thing he said was, tell me the news. I want to know the news. What's been happening in the world while I've been in the heart of Africa? The uh, the journalist looked at him and said, well, don't you want to read your letters from home first? I've got a whole bundle of letters from friends and family and loved ones. Wouldn't you like to read those first? No, 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 said Livingston. I'll come to those later. Right now, tell me how is the world getting on? So for the next few hours, Stanley brings Livingston up to date with everything that's been happening uh, while he's been missing uh, on the mission field. And I find that story fascinating because isn't it interesting that as human beings, we love the news. We absolutely love the news. We are news addicts, whether it's the newspapers or the TV, the radio, the internet. We have this insatiable curiosity to know what's going on out there in the world. And that curiosity is uniquely human. Australian rabbits don't sit there wondering what is going on with their furry cousins uh, back in England. Cats in Scotland don't lie awake at night wondering what is happening to cats on the other side of the world in Canada. But humans, 
my word, we are different. We have this craving, this desire to know what is going on in the furthest fun corners of the globe. Where does that craving come from? Where does this insatiable desire to care, not just about our own family, our own kith and kin, but to know what's happening on the other side of the country, the other side of the world, come from? Well, I suspect, I think that the answer is probably comes from the fact that we are made in the image of God. And we are made in the image of a God who the Bible tells us repeatedly loves the world. God is not concerned just with one small corner of the globe, but he's concerned with the whole thing. He made each one of us. He made every human being. He knows us intimately. He loves us infinitely. And he demonstrated that love by sending Jesus uh, into the world as we were singing about not so long ago. And as the uh, Australian Baptist preacher, F.W. Borum, uh, once put it, he said, if this stupendous verity, if this truth of God's love does not inspire and inflame our enthusiasm for mission to the world, nothing will. When the church comes to understand the love with which God loved the world, she will be restless and ill at ease until all the great empires have been captured and every coral island has been won. So the first reason this morning to get excited and passionate and enthusiastic about the work of mission is because God loves the world. And when we catch something of God's heart for this world that he has made, what a motivation for mission? Well, the second reason, if God's love for the world is the first reason we should get excited about mission, the second reason is this. If we grasp the significance of the gospel, we have to tell others we simply cannot keep quiet. The good news of the gospel, that although we are profoundly lost, there is forgiveness and reconciliation with God on offer. The incredible news that God loves us so much but that we desperately need his healing and reconciliation and the implications of the gospel that those who die outside of Christ face eternal consequences. When you grasp the contours of the gospel and you really get them into the depth of your being, it has to motivate you to mission. Yet one of the challenges I think sometimes in the church, for those of us who attend regularly, we've heard the gospel so often that it sometimes becomes a little bit blasé, a little bit second nature, and we can lose the urgency of the gospel. One of my favorite entertainers is the American comedy magician, uh, Penn Gillette, one half of Penn and Teller, arguably two of the most famous entertainers of the most recent 30 or 40 years. Their shows uh, and uh, live shows and TV shows have been watched by millions and millions and millions. Penn Gillette, though, is also an outspoken atheist outspoken atheist, famous for blistering attacks upon Christianity. Well, a few years ago, Gillette uh, surprised, stunned his fans by releasing on his website a little video he'd recorded called The Gift of a Bible. And in that video, he tells the story of how after one of his shows in Las, in Las Vegas, uh, a gentleman came up to, to meet him at the end. Penn thought he was coming for an autograph, but actually this gentleman came up, thanked him for the show, and then nervously said, I want to give you a gift, and gave Gillette the gift of a Bible. Gillette went on to remark what courage that must have taken. He said, I'm a fiery, outspoken atheist, well known for telling people of faith where to put it. Uh, but he said, it must have taken huge courage for that man to come up and give me that Bible. But then he didn't stop there. He went on and he said something remarkable. He said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. 
I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever and you think that, well, it's really not worth telling them this because it would be socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, but that truck was bearing down on you, well, there comes a certain point where I just tackle you. And this is more important than that. Interesting words from a fiery atheist. And I would say Gillette is absolutely right. If we truly believe the message of the gospel, that a person's eternal destiny depends upon them hearing and responding to the incredible news about Jesus and the cross and his resurrection, how can we even contemplate keeping that to ourselves? So I would suggest that our second reason to be motivated about mission is if we truly believe the gospel, then we really have to engage and get behind and be passionate about mission. What a wonderful motivator that is. So for two reasons down, the first is God's love for the world, the second is the implications of the gospel. Third reason to get excited about mission this morning is it's the reason that we're here. It's the reason that we're here. In fact, I don't just mean here in this church this morning, but I mean the reason you are a Christian in the first place. I mean, the chances are the reason that you are a Christian this morning is because somebody told you about Jesus at some point in your life. Maybe it was a parent or a friend or a co-worker, or a missionary, somebody who was a missionary to you, and now you are a follower of Jesus. In my case, I became a Christian at a youth camp sometime around 1984, 1985. I was at a youth camp, it was a dark and stormy night, the rain was beating down on the tent because it was summer in England, and our summers are legendary, by which I mean they don't exist. But despite the foul weather outside, inside the youth leader preached up a storm and I felt this conviction to go forward at the end of the meeting and respond. But although that was the moment I went forward and said yes publicly to Jesus, many other Christians had already had a massive impact on me. My parents had had an impact on me. Christian friends had an impact on me. The preaching I'd heard at the church over the years had an impact on me. But then I start thinking about, well, that's interesting. Why were my friends Christians? Why my mum and dad Christians? Well, the answer is somebody told them, and somebody told that person, and somebody told that person, and somebody told that person. And now I trace the line further back. I get to the very first Christians in England, Celtic missionaries who'd come across from Ireland and uh, Scotland, who had planted monasteries at places like Lindisfarne on the northeast coast of England, uh, missionaries who faced flood and fire and poverty and hardship and Viking invasions in order to bring the gospel to my people historically. But you can go further back. You could trace the history of missions, the line of witness back through the first Christian missions to Europe, all the way back to those first Christians like the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts who took the gospel across the ancient world. And the more you reflect on that, hopefully that lands you on this place of awe and wonder, actually, at the way the spreading flame of the gospel has been sustained through history. And it should also, presumably, hopefully, lead to gratitude. Each one of us in this room should be profoundly grateful to the men and women of the past who took the gospel onwards and onwards, often at great personal cost. It's because of them we are here. 
And last week, we looked at Hebrews uh, chapter 12, that great cloud of witnesses we mentioned briefly last week. And of course, that great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12 that are listed there are not just uh, there as great heroes and heroines of faith. They're also there to remind us that we are there because of them. We are there because they passed the baton of faith on. And then we come to Paul, who in verse uh, 24 of of Acts 20, where we just read, talks about the race that he himself has run. And I love the fact that when you think about it, missions does indeed look like a race, but it's not a sprint so much as a relay race, as each generation of Christians before us passes on the baton to the one after it. And we too today have been entrusted to do the same thing, to take the message of the gospel that we have received and pass it on to others. And if we love Christ, and if we are grateful to those who share their faith with us, then that should be a motivator too for missions so that we too continue the chain of the gospel. So three reasons so far to get motivated about mission. God loves the world when you take the gospel seriously, when you reflect on the the generosity and kindness and commitment of those who have gone before us. Fourth and penultimate reason to get excited about missions, though, is a contemporary one now, and it's the fact that church is growing. The church is growing all around the world today. uh, God's word is going forth, and exciting things are happening out there in the globe uh, in terms of the gospel. You know, I love that the organizers of this conference, when they were thinking of an image to stick on the screen and to stick on the conference brochure, they chose the image of a volcano. I love the fact that they chose an image of a volcano. You see, I have been at missions conferences over the years where the organizers have gone for things like a candle. Well, that's great. I mean, that, this is the light of mine, etc., etc. I've been at conferences where the organizers have been a bit bolder, and they've gone for a flashlight to symbolize the image of the gospel. But I love down here that in Australia, you guys go big or go home, quite frankly, and you chose the image of a volcano uh, to symbolize missions. Well, volcanoes reminds me of the story I came across uh, not so long ago, that some years ago, uh, geologists in America, geologists working in Yellowstone National Park, uh, one of the first national parks in America, were, uh, they were faced with a mystery. And the mystery was that Yellowstone National Park, everywhere they looked, they could see signs of volcanic activity. There were lava flows, there were hot springs, seismic activity, but there was no volcano anywhere to be seen. How on earth do you lose a volcano? Our American cousins are famously careless, but losing a volcano is quite something. Eventually, satellite imagery solved the mystery. They were standing in the volcano. (laughs) Yellowstone National Park sits in the middle of a volcanic crater 43 miles across. It is one of the largest supervolcanoes on the planet. You see, sometimes you can miss something even when it's right under your nose. Sometimes you can miss something even when you're standing in the middle of it. And I think this is true when it comes to mission. We can miss the fact that actually the church is growing faster and uh, reaching further than arguably any time in history. As George Verwer of Operation Mobilization, who I told you about at the start, put it it shortly before he died, he said, we need to remember that we are in the midst of the greatest harvest of people to the Lord the world has ever seen. And in westernized secular countries like Australia or the UK, we can sometimes miss this, although it's interesting to look around our congregations and observe how multicultural They are the church that Astrid and I and the kids attend in the UK, full of different nationalities. 
which is a little wake-up call and a reminder that around the world, amazing things are happening in terms of the growth of the gospel. For example, in Africa, there were nine million Christians in 1900. There are now 541 million Christians. In the last 15 years alone, the church in Africa has grown by 51%. Or you might look at China. Uh, In China, despite the attempts of the Communist Party to shut it down and make life difficult and persecute the church, there are now something like 120 million Christians uh, in China. China is on track to become the world's largest Christian country by 2030, and that growth has all happened in the last few decades. Or consider Iran, where a church that I mentioned briefly in passing last week, the story in Iran is incredible. There are now over a million Christians in Iran, despite the persecution, despite how difficult it is to follow Christ. It is the fastest growing church in the world, the church in Iran right now, and there are similar stories across the Middle East. And I'm reminded as I look at this contemporary growth that we can actually forget how the church has always advanced across cultures. The gospel has never stood still. The Holy Spirit has never uh, given up on the work of mission. The spreading flame of the gospel began in Bethlehem. From Bethlehem, it went to Jerusalem. Then it went to Antioch, and it went to Athens. It went to Egypt, Carthage, Rome. It went across the North Atlantic. Then it spread into the Southern Hemisphere. Now it's spreading into Africa and Asia. The gospel is always active. The Holy Spirit is always on the move. What an exciting time to get behind, to get involved in praying for, giving to missions when you see what is going on. We've looked at four reasons so far to be excited about mission, but I want to leave you with one more, one final one as we draw the threads to a close. And that's a fifth reason to get excited about missions is getting excited about missions enlarges our own vision. And as the book of Proverbs reminds us, where there is no vision, the people perish. And it's interesting that you can see that, I think, in in churches today. Study after study has shown that churches that are passionate about mission are healthier across the board. Because when you focus on mission, it is a great way to prevent you turning from a lighthouse, a hospital, or an embassy, all good metaphors for the church. It prevents you turning into a museum. If you focus outwards, it keeps you focused on what God intended you to be. When uh, my wife and I uh, lived in Canada, we were in Canada uh, for six years. Towards the end of our time there, one of the largest uh, groupings of evangelical churches in Canada put together a report called the Hemorrhaging Faith Report. And this report looked at the fact that in Canada, 70% of Christian young people who go to university lose their faith. They walk away from faith at university. I suspect there are not dissimilar stats here uh, in Australia. But the Hemondring of Faith Report looked at the 30% who remain, and it asked the question, are there patterns, are there trends, are there things we can see in young people who make it through the university years and remain passionate in their faith? Are there there signs and indicators that are the clues to resilience? And they came up with a list of top five things uh, that if you see it, that you can encourage young, young adults to get into. But second on the list was interesting. They discovered that young adults who go to university, who before they go to university, have done some short term mission. They've gone abroad for a few weeks or for longer. They've gone and served God in some far-flung part of the world. They've experienced the global church. They've got their feet wet in short-term missions, are massively more resilient in terms of hanging on to their faith at university. Why? 
because I think getting involved in missions expands your horizon. It gives you a much bigger sense of what God is doing globally. It, it destroys the idea that church is just the four walls that you've grown up familiar with, but it gives you a sense of God's work around the world. And so mission has this wonderful sense of rebounding on us and stretching our own faith. So those are five exciting reasons this morning to get passionate about, to get involved in, to be supportive of mission. It's a a reminder of the fact that God loves the world, the importance of the gospel, gratitude for what's been done for us in the past, the reality that the church is growing and it's terrifically exciting right now, and the fact that mission will strengthen our own discipleship. So that leads very naturally to the kind of question I landed on last week. What is our response going to be and where will you go? We read earlier, we had read to us Acts chapter 20. If you were to flick back 19 chapters in the book of Acts, you'd come to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus talks about the idea of concentric circles of mission. He tells the first Christians how they will be reaching out into Jerusalem, Judea, and the world. And maybe thinking of concentric circles can be helpful to us because maybe God is calling you to be thinking outwardly. Maybe some of you are called to reach that first circle, your street and your neighbors and your workplace. Maybe some of us are called to be thinking a little bit wider still and think about our neighborhood and our wider community. Maybe some of us, God has a desire, a plan for us to be thinking in terms of reaching our entire town or your state or maybe even the entire country. And maybe there's some of you here in this room that God wants to place a heart for the world uh, in terms of how he would use and send you. And you know, in those concentric circles, I'm intrigued by the fact, I observe by the, the fact that often in the contemporary church, we focus higher up the list. In these days, we tend to focus far more on mission at home, mission to our immediate community, mission to our town, and that's, that's absolutely fine. I work for an organization that focuses on those smaller circles. But at the same time, we also need to make sure we lift our eyes to the global horizon because the God who loves the world has a plan to reach that world. And we need a vision for global missions. Again, I love the history of missions, but it's my prayer that God today would be raising up the future David Livingstons, that God would raise up a a Lottie Moon. Those stories from mission history are phenomenal. I love great mission stories. But let's make sure the great mission stories are not merely the stories of the past, but are the stories of the present and the future too. But in all of this, when we hear these kind of things, if you're like me, and I've sat through many kind of missionary messages, there could be a tendency to sit there and go, yeah, but what can I do? Andy, what can I do? I'm so small. I'm insignificant. I'm a new Christian. I'm too old. I'm too young. There's nothing that God could use. I don't have what it takes to make a difference. Well, One of the things I love about reading scripture is there are so many examples in the Bible of God doing a lot with not very much. Think about the Old Testament. We have one elderly man and his barren wife there in the beginning of the book of Genesis. Read further on in the Old Testament. We have Gideon and his tiny army. We have a shepherd boy and a couple of rocks. We have a grumpy prophet. We read about him last week. We have a tiny nation, insignificant on the world stage. Well, come to the New Testament, we have one boy's packed lunch. Or in the book of Acts, we have a tiny bunch of frightened men and women hiding out in the face of the might of Rome. But God took each of those tiny things and magnified them tremendously. And God can do the same today. I have a, an old friend, 
called John Bechtel, who was a missionary in Hong Kong for some decades. And some years ago, John had a vision to start a Christian camp uh, in Hong Kong to reach young people for Christ. And he came across the absolutely perfect facility, disused orphanage with every, every sort of facility uh, that they could need for this mission they were planning. So he asked the caretaker of this disused, disused orphanage what kind of sum of money the owners uh, would accept for them to purchase it. And the caretaker told them that it was actually worth a million dollars, but because the owner was sympathetic to Christian things, John and his fellow missionaries could have it for a quarter of a million dollars. Very generous, but even that was a problem because neither John nor his fellow missionaries had any money at all. Well, around this time, a very famous American preacher was visiting Hong Kong, and he heard about the need, he heard the story, and he said to John, don't worry, what I'll do, I'll go back to the USA, I will preach, uh, I'll go on a preaching tour, I'll tell people in America about the need for this camp, and I will raise all the money you need, don't worry about a thing, I'll be in touch. Three months later, John got a letter from his friend, this uh, American preacher. The letter started this way. Uh, Dear John, I'm afraid uh, I have some bad news and I hate to write this. And it went on to say how he had failed to raise any money at all. But he did enclose a letter, a letter from a little girl aged 14 called Melinda Holmes. Melinda's letter said, Dear Mr. Bechtel, here is my ice cream money for two weeks. Please use it to buy the camp and enclosed was one dollar. So John went back to the caretaker of the orphanage, showed him the letter, showed him the money, and the caretaker just literally laughed at him. But John insisted that he take it and show it to the owners. Two weeks later, they gave John the entire camp. 4.5 acres, a dormitory for hundreds, classrooms, sports facilities, everything, all for one dollar. And since then, over a million young people have been through Sundo camp. Thousands have come to Christ, all because one little girl, one 14-year-old, gave her one dollar of ice cream money. And God used it to do things beyond anybody's wildest dreams. Brothers and sisters, whether it is our money, or whether it's our time, or whether it's our talents, no matter how small we feel they may be, if we lay them down and offer it to the Lord for mission, he can multiply them a thousandfold and even more on top of that. Where will you go? How will the Lord use you? Who knows the answer to that question, but it begins by saying, here I am, Lord, send me. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you are the God who delights in doing the impossible. You delight in taking things that look humanly impossible and turning them upside down and inside out and using them for your glory and your kingdom. Father, please forgive us for times that we sometimes raise the objection to mission, often beginning with, I'm too small. But thank you that you can use any of us if we make ourselves available. And Lord, would you challenge us to do that again today? If it's our time, our talents, our money, give us the courage and the confidence to lay them at your feet knowing you could multiply them a thousandfold. And Lord, in all of it, thank you that we do it, we get to do it in celebration of what you have first done for us in the person of Jesus, who gave everything for us that we might know your love and uh, welcome into your family. Use us, I pray, uh, to impact others in the way that you've impacted us through your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.